Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out newdealleaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Welcome to an honorable profession. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of the New Deal, where we're proud to support so many of the amazing leaders you hear on this podcast. In this episode, I love talking with Vermont Lieutenant Governor Molly Gray. Just elected in November as the second youngest lieutenant governor in the country, she assumed office on January 7th in the middle of the pandemic and just a day after the insurrection in Washington, D.C. We talked about what it's been like to lead in these challenging times her effort to bring more young people into government and politics, as well as her Recover Stronger tour, where she's been talking to Vermont residents across her state who have been impacted by the pandemic about what they need most. We also talked about growing up on her family's farm, her work in international human rights, why she's so passionate about family and medical leave, and how lessons from her days as a competitive skier are applicable to governing. The Lieutenant Governor may be new to elected office, but she's definitely one to keep your eye on. Well, Molly Gray, welcome to an honorable profession. Thank you. It's wonderful to be on. It's so exciting to talk to you. You were just sworn in as Lieutenant Governor of Vermont in January of this year, and this is your first elected office. So I'm super excited to talk to you about just, you know, what a kind of an unprecedented time you find yourself in as a first-time elected office holder and all the great things you've been doing in Vermont to help build back better. There's so many simultaneous challenges we're facing at, at once. In fact, I'd love to start with the fact that you were sworn in on January 7th, which is the day after, of course, the insurrection in Washington, D.C. What was that like? I think you were sworn in to heighten security even. Um, what was that like? And, and did it kind of alter any expectations about what it was going to mean to be an elected official in these these really trying times. Yeah, Debbie, you know, the the insurrection on January 6th, I don't think anyone expected that, of course. And uh, there's no playbook for a COVID campaign and certainly no playbook for a COVID legislative session, but the insurrection really changed everything in many ways. Uh, Vermont's so proud to have a state house that's really open. Truly, anybody can come into the building at any point to do a tour, um, to observe a hearing, to observe legislative proceedings. We don't have, there's security, but there's no security passageway, if you will. And so that's something we really, we really, really pride ourselves on. I remember I was in the lieutenant governor's office um, doing some final preparations on January 6th and and the outgoing lieutenant governor um, was around as well. And then all of a sudden we hear about the insurrection and this state house that prides itself on being so open became completely sort of fortified. There was the next day there was folks with 
uh, AR-7 or AR-14s, whatever they are, um, weapons outside the building. Uh, there were, you know, in terms of security, there was um, heightened security in the building. I had secret service or a security detail with me as well, which in Vermont, the lieutenant governor doesn't have security. So it was pretty scary. It really felt like, how did this happen, not only nationally, but also in Vermont? So it was a very, very small swearing-in ceremony and a in a largely empty chamber with all the senators on a big Zoom screen. Uh, my, my family didn't attend, uh, you know, partially for security reasons, but partially for health reasons as well. And then that was really how the session ended up being in our state house. A little bit less security once we got away from from the the sixth and the seventh and also after president biden was sworn in but every day i would go down to montpelier i would go to my office i'd say hello to the security guards sometimes the president pro tem and the speaker would be there but i would be gaveling in to an uh, empty senate chamber with all of the senators on zoom i'd be there with the uh the parliamentarian and and the clerks so again no playbook for for a first session, it was it was certainly challenging, but I am so deeply proud of what we were able to do and how we were able to come together, use all the tools at our disposal to keep Vermonters feeling like and actually being able to accept, access the building, access meetings, access hearings. We really turned everything on, you know, online and made democracy still accessible and still possible despite the ch- most challenging of circumstances. Yeah, it is amazing how people were able to um, adapt, right, and keep getting stuff done. You know, when we think about January 6th, obviously, we think about kind of these, these deep divisions in our country, and even the fact that we can't really agree on a set of facts. So, you're, you know, again, you're coming into office in that kind of environment. How do you think about that in terms of how do you think about being able to accomplish things and get things done um, and, and with that as a backdrop? I think Vermont, you know, we often say we're all on Team Vermont. I ran for office on a platform that was very focused on putting people before politics and tried to do that sort of in my in my um, engagements throughout the campaign, really to help Vermonters understand that some of the issues that we face as a state, a lack of broadband access, um, a fourth of the state geographically can't get online, uh, childcare being extremely expensive and just non-existent in a lot of the state, uh, no paid family and medical leave where the in a state that is, you know, we're the second oldest state in the country. I think sometimes the first, <laughs> depending on the year. So we have a lot of challenges that impact people, you know, our, our human infrastructure, and that those can't be political issues. So really trying to take those values around, you know, working across the aisle, working together, bringing the best and brightest minds in the state together to help problem solve, bringing that into the office, and. So I think coming out of the insurrection, there wasn't a lot of debate here in Vermont about what happened. The, I think the biggest concern for me personally, and this is something that really guided the, the first session in the legislature, but the first six or seven months in office, was how do we make sure that all Vermonters feel connected to government, that they feel at you know, feel as if government is theirs. It is theirs to hold, to participate in, uh, to to engage with. So we started doing what was called Lieutenant Governor for a day, and we'll keep we'll keep doing it uh, next year as well. But we had classrooms throughout the state come in virtually to the state house. I would meet with them, talk about what the Lieutenant Governor's office does, and then they would literally go with me virtually to gavel in the Senate and just to demystify government. So I feel really passionate about that. I think our biggest challenge is actually how to make sure that Americans and Vermonters feel 
that government is theirs, theirs to 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 really hold and cherish and and nurture. So yeah, that's one of my big takeaways, and we're really proud of the work that we're doing to support that. Yeah, I love that. On the Lieutenant Governor for a Day, which I know is one of your early initiatives, as you mentioned, and really geared at students, it feels like you have really made a priority, not just having all Vermonters be able to access government, but trying to get young people into government, into politics. And probably worth pointing out that you're the second youngest lieutenant governor in the country behind another New Deal leader, Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin. So, you know, why is it, I think it's important, but why, why, why would you tell people that's so important to make sure that young people feel connected? Yeah, well, we're the next generation, or we are the present generation, we need to get the next generation. But I'm not a generationalist. I don't think it's, you know, the 30 somethings versus the 40 somethings. But we do in Vermont, we we have a demographic crisis, we have workforce shortages in every sector. We really struggle to keep young people in the state or to draw young people back. That's why I ran for office. And I thought, you know, if we can really focus on some of these underlying issues, or I'd say like the constellation of opportunities that allow families to work, to thrive, young people to um, really build a life in the state, that we're going to reverse that crisis and see a you know, a, a healthy economy. So uh, for me, that's that's childcare, that's broadband, that's affordable, quality, universal, you know, childcare. It's also housing, making sure they have housing access. We have housing, a housing crisis across the state in our rural communities and our more urban um, communities and towns. So I think there is a generation that really finds themselves in a, in a tremendously challenging situation. There's a generation that has student loan debt. I have student loan debt that hasn't bought a home because they're paying for student loans. You know, and they're making that choice that are thinking about having kids but are not doing it because of other underlying costs, housing and student loan debt, for example. And then are coming uh, into an age where their parents or older family members need care and they're the sandwich generation. And to have those voices reflected in government, I think is extremely important as we assess our needs and also our values and aligning both uh, to really invest in our human infrastructure. So those are some things that I'm most excited about and uh, most focused on as Lieutenant Governor. And I know that Mandela Barnes, Lieutenant Governor um, Barnes cares about those issues, but there's a lot of Lieutenant Governors who I'd say like our next generation leaders across the country who are equally committed. So I think it's an exciting time and we're all kind of working together and sharing best practices and ideas, um, making sure that, yeah, we have a really solid plan for not only the future of our states and communities, but for the future of America. Yeah, absolutely. I want to dive into a couple of those issues that you were talking about that are so important to you. You've worked so diligently on. I I do want to, before we leave the swearing in, I also just have to mention that for people who don't know, Vermont has an amazing group of women leading your legislature. So uh, you as Lieutenant Governor, of course, are the Senate President, as you mentioned, gaveling in, but also I think you're Speaker of the House and your Senate Majority Leader and your House Majority Leader, and even maybe 40% of the legislature overall is is female, and that should not be news, of course, but it it is one of the highest in the the country. So tell us about that. What is it like working with such a a group of of women leaders um, that not everyone gets to do as a woman leader in politics? It's awesome. It's really awesome. Uh, for lack of a, of a uh, you know better word, but Vermont has a, a not so proud history. Uh, you know, you know, we've never sent a woman to Washington. We're the only state in the nation who hasn't done that. We've never elected a woman to the attorney general's office. We've had one 
woman serve as governor ever. I'm the fourth woman to serve as lieutenant governor. So this last election was a pretty big deal to have in our legislature, you know, the president pro tem, the speaker, both women, and to have a lieutenant governor, right? And I serve as president of the Senate as well, as a woman as well. And I, and while I, I believe that men can be leaders on issues that uh, really impact the economic well-being of women, to have women there, I think it changes the conversation. You know, it, it really puts personal experience and the um, experience of friends and sisters and aunts and mothers and children at the forefront, right? When we're talking about childcare, that's not something that um, we hear about. We experience it. You know, we're hearing from women about who have had to leave the workforce during the pandemic because they've had to choose between childcare and, and working. The data is a little bit refuted, but Vermont disproportionately has had women leave the workforce because of the pandemic in the fall. And I think it was November and October, it was 74 or 73% of unemployment claims were filed by women. Mm-hmm. And at the spring, we've seen 60, you know, 60, 60 plus percent of, of claims, which is higher, higher than the national average. So we're seeing it in Vermont, we're experiencing it in Vermont. And to have women leading and driving the conversation on paid family leave and driving the conversation on childcare, I think really sets us up for addressing the economic well-being of women. But most importantly, I strongly believe if you can't see it, you can't be it. And that goes for so many professions, right? We need to see women, um, more women judges. We need to see more women in law enforcement. We need to see more women as CEOs and executives. We need to see more women as plumbers and electricians and the sciences and in medicine. But we need to see more women in government. And so I, you know, every day I'm like, you know, young women across Vermont, you can be lieutenant governor, you can be a senator, you can be a congresswoman, you can be an attorney general. I think that's the message that we need to send. Um, and hopefully this is a new chapter for Vermont. Yeah, well, we will work on getting uh, the the ones that you still need done, done, I think in Vermont, right? <laughs> but it is so, so refreshing. And, you know, and as you talked about some of these issues, you know, they shouldn't be women's issues, right? I had this conversation with another another guest one time, you know, childcare should not be a woman, you know, a woman's issue, but it, it does disproportionately affect us women. And, you know, you, you had your own experience with family uh, leave. And I think it was one of the reasons that really propelled you into running for office yourself. T- tell us about that and tell us what, what I know that you've been a, a hugely vocal champion for, for paid family and medical leave. Tell us what's happening in Vermont on that and whether you've got some, um, you know, some hope that, that things will change there. Yeah. It's quite personal for me. I'll, I'll tell you the story briefly. I, uh, I was working in the attorney general's office as an assistant attorney general before um, deciding to run for office. And this event was sort of like the people say that you have a moment where you're like, wait, I want to do something to change the way things are. Um, And my mom who has multiple sclerosis and she's had it for about 20 years diagnosed, uh, unfortunately had a a pretty uh, significant health emergency. And as I think most women or children do when that happens to a loved one, you step in, right? And you're, you're ready. Like, what am I going to do? Thinking about caregiving, thinking about all of the things that need to happen to make sure someone can recover. Uh, and that mean may mean changing the home, um, you name it. So I had used up all my vacation days and sick days, helping my mom was in the hospital and our family think about how we're going to get through this family medical crisis. And I, all of a sudden realized, I was like, wait, I don't have a ton of savings. I am paying my student loans off. 
I'm having making just enough to also pay my rent. And I don't know how much longer I could go if I had to take unpaid leave before having to actually maybe leave my job altogether or figure out some other sort of plan. And I was like, how do we not have paid family and medical leave in Vermont as as I said, the, the second oldest state in the nation with a lot of older Vermonters who are going to need caregiving and not falling on a generation, the sandwich generation that I was talking about. And it was really this aha moment. And especially as someone who you know, I have a law degree, I, I have a lot of privilege. And there are women um, with a lot less opportunity every day having to make those, those decisions. So uh, at the time, there was a paid family and medical leave bill going through our legislature. Uh, they passed the House and the Senate uh, didn't take it up. And I like, how can you not take this up? Like, you know, this just seems like, you know, really, really so basic and so important to Vermont. So that was really the impetus for deciding to run for office. And I've been very focused on paid family and medical leave since. I do hope and I feel really excited about what's happening at the national level. <laughs> and there's another area where I think representation matters to have a vice president and a president who really, really care about families, the Build Back Better agenda and the American Families Plan that could potentially provide 12 weeks of universal, comprehensive paid family and medical leave to not only all Vermonters, but all Americans is the direction we need to go. It's long overdue. But whether that happens or not, I'm I'm very, very focused here in the state and building the support to make sure we can pass um, something at the local level. But knock on wood, uh, the Senate and House and, and the executive branch will get it done and our congressional delegation gets it. Um, I think we have one of the best delegations in the country, if I may say, and uh, hopefully we can get it across the line. Yeah, it is so important. And it just it's long overdue at the federal level. So I'm going to, but thank you for your leadership on this. I know both in your state, but also being a huge advocate for that federal legislation to pass. I want to ask you about broadband, but maybe I'll do it in the con because you mentioned that a couple of times. I know that that's another area where you've been such a huge champion. Um, well, let's just talk about that. And then I'll, because I want to talk about this tour that you've been doing, which I'm sure you're hearing from people about, um, about some of these issues, but let's talk about broadband first. That's another place that you, you've mentioned a couple of times already here. I know from your work, you've really been a national champion and vocal advocate for getting people online. Obviously, this is one of those areas where we knew there was a problem, but COVID just made it so much more stark, right? That the, the 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 inequalities and disparities in access and affordability, where you know we were relying on it for work and for school and everything else. Tell us about why broadband has been such a um, priority for you and in, in your tenure here. Yeah, if we're going to keep a generation in Vermont or draw a generation back that wants to live in a state that's had, and I say this with the utmost humility, one of the best responses to COVID in the nation. We have 85% of Vermonters vaccinated. Amazing. Have, congratulations. Sorry, not to interrupt you, but just um, that deserves an interruption to say congratulations. <laughs> remarkable effort with our commissioner of health, our governor, you know, who's a Republican, you know, working across party lines to just make sure Vermonters knew how important getting vaccine is and and it turns out Vermonters like to roll up the sleeve and come together and look out for their neighbors and their friends and their family and community. So we're really proud of that. But it means that as folks are looking to places for places to live around the country that are safe, um, that have a lot of job opportunities, uh, hopefully more housing stock if we can get that built, that we want Vermont to be a welcoming place. But right now a fourth of Vermont geographically can't get online. 66,000 
for homes and residences just don't have access. One in three children in Newberry in the town where I grew up can't get online. So it really comes down to basic human rights and human needs. If we think about what it is that broadband provides today, it is the highway. It is the highway for healthcare access. It's the highway for access to education. It's a highway for access to, to economic opportunity, to mental health and support services. All of the basic human services needs, rights that we expect from a thriving economy and a thriving society kind of come back to this, this tool, right? And so when we think about it that way, I do believe that we have to think about broadband more as a public good and figure out how we as a state and states across the nation and also nationally on the federal level can identify home by home, uh, business by business, who doesn't have access, and then using all the tools at our disposal, you know, sometimes it's increased cellular service so that, you know, folks can access cell phones, which are computers, right? In many ways, you're walking around with a handheld computer. Um, maybe it's satellites. Uh, we have a very, very pu big push here in Vermont for fiber access. Our legislature did a huge investment, about $150 million this session um, in fiber to the home. It's going to take a while. And I, I don't think all Vermonters want to wait, but it's a, it's a historic, it's an important investment. And we have communications union districts, we call them CUDs, which are sort of municipal local nonprofits that have been propped up across the state to deploy fiber. So I'm proud of what we're doing, um, but I still think that there's an, a level of urgency given the need and given the um, access challenges and the affordability challenges and the literacy challenges that all have to be addressed and ultimately it has to come back to the state and working with private partners to make it happen. So. We continue to focus on that because I really think it's it's linked to Vermont's economic future and just equity, basic equity across the state. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I you know, we've talked, I've been at framing a lot of these questions, frankly, as challenges. But the truth is, I also really see this time as an opportunity, right? Because we have to rethink everything. How, you know, how often do you have that opportunity as a generation and a lifetime to be able to say, okay, look, we can do things totally different in so many areas all at once. And so, and I know you believe that. In fact, you have launched this Recover Stronger tour uh, around the state that you've been doing. One of the tools in uh, state and local leaders' toolboxes to address some of this is going to be the help from the federal government, the uh, American Rescue Plan, which has already passed, and hopefully down the road more um, through things like the American Families Plan. So that I believe that that's the impetus for the tour is to talk about how you spend some of those dollars, what Vermonters are telling you about what they need and how to prioritize things. So tell us about the tour, what you're hearing and what you're thinking in, in early stages about that um, spending that money. It's a historic moment. I love your framing of you know, from crisis comes opportunity, or I think it was Buttigieg who actually said it in a, in a call maybe a year ago. He's like, you should never let a good crisis go to waste, which is, it feels right with the pandemic, but we have to, we have to think differently. We have to really take this opportunity. It's like the stake's been pulled from the ground and where are we going to put it back down? Are we going to put it back down the same place? No, we're going to put it back down in a place where we're really investing in our human infrastructure, investing in broadband, investing in housing, um, and of course, in climate action and good green jobs and workforce development. But I believe if we're going to bring Americans and bring Vermonters along in that conversation, we have to listen to them. And our communities have really been at the forefront of responding to this pandemic. 
here in Vermont, that means getting vaccines out, addressing food insecurity. We have one in five Vermonters are food insecure. There's a lot that's happened through local nonprofits, through municipality leadership, through our select boards. So over the last eight, I guess, nine weeks, uh, once the legislative session ended, uh, and knowing that we have billions of dollars coming to Vermont, and we've only allocated 600 million, plus the 3.5 trillion in the Build Back Better agenda. I want to hear from Vermonters. What what do they know? What have they learned? Um, what should stay? What changes have happened at the community level that should stay? A lot of Vermonters like working from home. A lot of Vermonters are realizing that childcare has to be a part of community life, right? It has to be part of really being able to support families. And so I've been out listening. I can tell you what I'm hearing. I'm hearing that Housing is an absolute necessity. Um, We have a housing crisis in Vermont without question that uh, mental health and support services, we're seeing a lot of kids who've been deeply impacted by the pandemic and there's an increase in rushes to the emergency room. Our emergency rooms are seeing a lot of of children who who are experiencing severe anxiety, depression. Um, Our mental health and support service providers are working around the clock. They are overworked, they are understaffed. So if if we're going to really align our budget with our greatest needs, I'm hoping this Recover Stronger Tour really serves as a needs assessment. And then we will release our findings and and working with the governor and the legislature and the congressional delegation, making sure that we're allocating those American Rescue Plan Act funds to really help us recover stronger, but also set us up to do things a little differently. And hopefully we'll make some investments where we'll see a really good return in terms of the well-being of our families and our workers and Vermonters in every corner of the state. Yeah, it is such an important time. And I'm, I want to keep talking about that uh, as you go forward. To, I, I think that there's so much we can learn from each other around the country on what's uh, what investments are working well, what those returns are. So so thank you for, for that work. You've mentioned something a couple of times I just want to drill down on because I just think it's it's really interesting. You've mentioned kind of trying to keep Vermonters and bring a generation of Vermonters back. I don't know if that is tied to something I was going to ask you about later, which is the, the rural nature of Vermont. You grew up on a farm, vegetable and dairy farm, which your family still runs. But I mean, so those, those might be, you can answer these two different questions or one question, but I'm, I'm kind of curious about what you're seeing in terms of people leaving the state, why they're leaving the state, what you need to do to, to keep them there. You've mentioned a couple of those things, but also in thinking about Vermont, I think people do think often rural areas, family farms, and what is it that that, that a state like yours needs um, to, to make sure that that economy continues to thrive? We often say um, there's more lights off than lights on in a lot of rural communities. I grew up in Newberry, which is in Orange County, Vermont. We have 14 counties. We often say it's sort of the town that time forgot. And it's true. I mean, nobody goes to Newberry, but it's a beautiful town with a wonderful elementary school and a general store. Uh, I grew up on a farm. My brother is also I worked outside the state for a while. My brothers did as well. They came home to help run the family farm. And uh, we want Vermonters to stay in the state and to know that there's lots of opportunities, but there's been a disconnect. I think uh, we have the highest graduation rate, one of the highest graduation rates in the country, something to be really proud of. But then we have uh, challenges in nearly every field. We have major workforce development challenges. So investments in affordable or free CCV, free or affordable higher education through our state colleges. Uh, I've been very focused on meeting with students in high school and saying, let's 
talk about all the amazing jobs that exist here, right? From working on electric vehicles to being a teacher that really specializes in online learning or the pedagogy of online learning, just for example, or working in our food systems and building really local, strong, resilient food systems that can handle a pandemic or handle um, climate change come what may. Uh, So trying to build that excitement also removing some of the stigma, you know, I'm a, of the generation that it was, you go to college and you get that 40 year degree and student loan debt or not, it's all going to work itself out. Well, it's not working itself out. There's a lot of people who have debt as we've talked about, and they're maybe having to make a lot of challenging decisions. So trying to get our next generation excited and to know that there's jobs and that they're ready and that they're valued and that they're needed in our communities. Also trying to draw those students, young adults who have left the state, like myself, but want to come back. And they want to come back because they want to take care of mom and dad, because they want to have kids in the communities where they grew up. And making sure that they can come back to Newberry or go up to the Northeast Kingdom, which is the Northeast corner of Vermont, the NEK, and go to a community and that there's broadband and that there's housing, um, that there's paid family and medical leave, and there's also childcare. So that infrastructure is set up, that landing pad. So that we can recruit them back and then get them to stay. And the same goes for um, Vermonters we want to, new Vermonters we want to welcome to our state. So I see those as sort of the, those investments that that really will set us up for a brighter future, um, that'll grow our workforce, that'll grow our tax base, which we need if we want to have a really functioning budget and a good revenue stream. That's what's exciting. That's what I really see in this moment. That's why I ran for office and uh, where we're chipping away at it every single day. But I I think it's a constellation and we now know that we have to, it's not just housing. It's not just broadband. It's not just childcare. It's, It's all of those things. Yeah. And is there anything particular that you're thinking about from with with the with the rural communities in Vermont uh, in terms of keeping that part of the economy more vibrant? There's so much so many uh, challenges, again, but opportunities probably, too, in terms of resiliency, climate change, how it's affecting crops. There's so much that goes into that. How do you think about uh, that? those parts of your state? I think that resiliency is exactly the word and also equity in participation. If we can talk about climate change for a moment. Uh, so I feel like every state has a story. Our state is, our maple sugar is were deeply impacted this year. Worst maple sugaring season in decades mm-hmm. because of pretty wild, diverse weather patterns. We're a state that also prides itself having like really great skiing during the winter, but our season continues to shift. And now we're starting to offer mountain biking and, you know, with very seasonal economy, our farmers are putting up more greenhouses and trying to adapt to diverse weather patterns because the growing season doesn't look the same. But as we uh, really put forward a plan to reduce um, emissions in the state and we, we passed the Global Warming Solutions Act, the legislature did, and is getting ready to put forward emission reduction goals for Vermont, we need to make sure that all Vermonters can participate. And that means making sure that any plan is equitable, it's universal. It allows, say my brothers on the farm who tell me, Molly, we can't tow anything with a Prius, right? That they they know and they have tools to weatherize the home, to purchase a truck that is an electric vehicle, that we can you know, put in more electric vehicle charging stations, um, that we're really thinking about what equity means in participating in that process. and that. You know, I think that sometimes there's a rural urban divide. It goes for transportation as well, but really making sure we're looking around the state, looking at the need and then making sure everyone can participate. Yeah. 
You, you've had such an interesting journey to elected office, and I want to talk about that for a minute. You mentioned that you left the state. So after, I think you even started in college working for Senator Leahy, maybe, if I'm remembering right, and, uh, and worked on the Hill for a while, went to law school, and then became really, had, had a, a career in, in human rights, right? And you worked internationally and led field missions for the Red Cross, International Red Cross. You you started something, and if I'm not, I'm not remember the name of it, but an, an initiative where you were the first people to talk about private contractors abiding around the world to human rights that you led. I'd love to talk about how you kind of that that path and how you chose that path of human rights. And obviously we're talking this week when we're watching just these heartbreaking images coming out of Afghanistan and the worry about what happens in particular to women and girls under the Taliban after the U.S. leaves. So would love your thoughts on what you think needs to happen to ensure human rights, you know, stay strong or best they can in Afghanistan. Yeah, I think there are so many Americans, veterans, humanitarian aid workers, human rights workers who are thinking about Afghanistan every minute right now, right? It's a lot of mixed emotions. It's devastating. It's heartbreaking. I remember exactly where I was, as I think most Americans do when 9-11 happened. Uh, And then kind of what that meant for me, but also a generation um, who ended up serving in the military. My brother enlisted in the Marine Corps and served in Iraq. I have dozens and dozens of friends who uh, went to work for the UN, for human rights and humanitarian aid organizations, because they felt a sense of service uh, around what was happening globally. And I worked for Congressman Welch in Washington uh, just after helping get him get helping to get him elected in 2006. And one of the first hearings that happened uh, when he was in D.C. was with Valerie Plame. And I remember she had been sort of outed as a CIA operative around the weapons of mass destruction and kind of blowing the whistle. Right. And that really changed the public discourse around what was happening in Iraq. And then the second hearing was actually Uh, Eric Prince. This was the Oversight and Government Reform Committee and the Niso Square incident where private security contractors were uh, hired and sent into Iraq and ended up killing a number of civilians. And for me, it really kind of opened my eyes and sort of this this consciousness that I sort of had as a Vermonter who had studied um, international relations, but really seeing a lot of tough issues playing out on an international stage and in Washington. So I went to work for the International Committee of the Red Cross which is a Geneva-based organization, uh, but has offices all around the world. And we had a a huge, huge team in Afghanistan. And I remember working very closely with the chief of mission there, um, with a lot of staff. And so it's hard. It's hard now. Those those moments really fired my career. I went to law school because I wanted to understand human rights and the constitution and making sure that our government was really abiding by our best values, right? And in our engagement with the world um, and promoting and protecting human rights. And then spent a lot of time uh, later actually helping the U.S. launch the first international association in the world to hold private contractors accountable uh, to a human rights framework, basically taking human rights law and saying, if contractors are going to work in conflict zones or in other complex environments, that they're going to have to abide by some rules. And the U.S. government, as the contracting, one of the contracting parties, is going to put a value in that. So it was a real effort to try to um, create some accountability and to create standards. But today, and, and I guess over the last 
several, several days as I watched what has happened in Afghanistan unfold. Um, the most challenging piece is that we know we have a moral obligation, but I think also a legal obligation under human rights law to care for the individuals who were under our care, who we had an obligation to protect, who were our, the translators, the support staff, the, the entire rule of law framework that the United States helped set up. Um, you know, this goes for USAID and the State Department, the Department of Defense, but there's also a large, as you know, human rights organization, and there's an aid organization, there's, there's tons of organizations that have been working in Afghanistan for 20 years. It's just heartbreaking to know that we didn't have a plan or that things didn't unfold the way we anticipated, and that we're now in a situation where a lot of people are uh, compromised in terms of their safety and security. But on a, you know, on a trying to be positive, we here in Vermont, we've put out a very, very clear and unequivocal statement that we are ready to welcome um, refugees, Afghan refugees. We have a long tradition of being uh, a state that is open and welcoming, and we have a tremendous refugee community. I've already expressed to our governor and to Senator Leahy that I'm ready, our office stands ready, and trying to just put all of that heartbreak and sadness into doing everything we can. And I know that governors and lieutenant governors across the country are doing that as well. So it's heartbreaking, but I, I do believe the right decision was ending a war that had gone on way too long. And that takes responsibility and that takes, you know, a lot of, a lot of courage. And I do commend the administration for doing that. I just hope that now we can do the right thing by all of the people who are our responsibility at the end of the day. Yeah. And I do just want to underscore that it's just been, so um, wonderful to see governors, lieutenant governors, mayors, a number of New Deal leader mayors coming out and saying, yes, we, you know, we, we're going to welcome these refugees to our towns and our, to our states. And let's hope that over the next coming days and months, that's exactly what happens. I, I do want to stay on your uh, journey for just a minute. So you came back to Vermont, as you mentioned, and decided to run for office. You've talked a little bit about some of those pieces, the family leave piece, the, um, you know, just making Vermont a better place generally for the generations who are there and those who can hopefully come back. Was there a single moment where you kind of said, I'm, I'm going to do this? I'm, you, 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 I should mention you came back and you, you, you you've obviously you've lived, you had a career already of public service, just not in elected office. We, you mentioned, including the human rights. And when you came back, you were working in the attorney's general's office as assistant attorney general. So you were already working in service. So what was it about elected office that kind of spoke to you? I think what happened with my mom and a you know, family member and just having that moment where you realize that something's just not working. It's not just working for you, but it's working for caregivers across the state and I'm referring to paid family and medical leave and, um, and caregiving. But throughout my career, I've regularly thought about, I guess, Eleanor Roosevelt, and this, it's sort of a rhetorical question that she put forward in the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And she always says, you know, where does human rights begin? It begins right here in our communities at home. And I felt like for a significant portion of my career, I've been looking out, like out at the world, trying to work to promote and protect human rights and to get countries and businesses to do the same. But then to come home and see families struggling to see a lack of housing, a lack of broadband, um, no childcare, like a lot of real need and tremendous need. And, and so to have the opportunity to kind of 
take that experience of bringing people together, working across party lines, to bringing that to my home, to this place that I love, the these communities that I love, and the, wherever I've been in the world, people always say, where are you from? And I said, I am from Vermont. And such pride, I think that's something that Vermonters really feel. We feel a real tremendous sense of place. So to be able to serve Vermont and to bring my experience to the table, um, to be here at this moment where we're we're really trying to address a lot of these generational issues and get young people involved and get people excited about the hope and possibility of government and what we can do. It's just an honor of a lifetime. So uh, I'm really, I'm just really, really honored to serve. And I really look forward to the journey ahead. And it's been hard, but as you said, it's you know, with crisis comes opportunity. And I feel like we have a real opportunity to get things right going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to, I, it, that would have been a good place to leave it, but I have one other question I just have to ask you uh, because that was so inspiring. But uh, I do want to ask you because you mentioned the um, ski, you mentioned skiing and ski season. I, I do love that when I was getting ready for this and re- reading a little bit about you that you were a competitive skier growing up in college, cross country skier, I believe. And I read uh, an, an interview you did where you talked to someone about the the similarities between running a campaign and skiing or being an athlete. So I want to ask you now that you've been in office for a while longer, this, any similarities you want to draw between uh, between cross-country skiing, being an athlete and governing? Oh, boy. Uh, I feel it every day. It's endurance. But I think most importantly, and I was talking to a, a class yesterday about law school, and they were just starting. And I tried to remind them that if you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of other people. I don't mean that in a paternalistic way by any means, but that wellness is extremely important. Um, I try to make time every day to work out and to stay fit, um, to do some push-ups. I've started doing CrossFit. And I think it's really important to realize that uh, public service is a journey. It's not, it's, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And that if you're really going to be there day in and day out, listening, learning, engaging, problem solving, being and bringing people together, you need to focus on the issues, focus on what you want to do and why you want to do it and be really honest with yourself and take care of yourself. And I think that's, I think those are the similarities that I've tried to get out and get some cross country skiing in this year, but with the legislative session, it was a little bit tough, but yeah, making time just to be outside and to enjoy what we have, right? Clean air and fresh air and hopefully snow in the future and this this beautiful environment that we have and not to take it for granted, you know, in the process. Yeah, yeah. So. I think that's good advice for anyone, but public servants in particular. And I just want to just tell you how grateful we are to you and uh, for your leadership on so many of these important issues. It's so great to hear about beautiful state of Vermont, one of the only states in the country I've never been to, by the way, I think maybe one of two or three, I know, which is crazy. So I'm definitely, that's on my list post pandemic to come visit you in Vermont, but I'm, uh, I'm re- just really grateful for, for all of you who put yourselves out there right now, particularly in these incredibly challenging times to just make sure that we're going to have a better an America coming out of this. that works better for everyone. So, so thank you. And thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.